since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertained. I'd beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. You're Lindsay. You're Aiden. Yes, I am. And this is the Bix Pod. Uh, we are here to discuss another Shakespearean play. Richard III. Richard III. Not Richard II. No. Not Richard IV. We haven't had another Richard since Richard III. For obvious reasons, I think, after yeah. reading the play. Yeah, after reading the play. It, it, it doesn't paint a, a pretty picture of that uh, regnal no. name, No, I it doesn't. Say, so. It doesn't. Yeah. Um, this is a, a dastardly play. It's full of twists and turns and, and wild and machinations yep. and Aiden is going to tell us all about it in 30 seconds or less probably right. more but probably yes. more I have faith in you I think you'll be able to do it well that is misplaced but we will try do you want, do you want to say that word again try try you said try try I'm trying to say try that's that's why it's going to take longer more than 30 seconds because I can't talk I have 30 seconds on the clock. Are you ready to go? I'm ready to go. Three, two, one. In this play, Richard III uh, marries the widow of Edward IV, but he's not Edward IV because Edward IV took the throne. Uh, marries a, his distant cousin Anne, uh, murders his brother Clarence. Well, gets somebody else to murder his brother Clarence. Uh, has, after his other brother Edward dies, has his kids murdered uh, so that he can become king. And he becomes king. And then everybody's like, whoa, dude, that was bad. And then they all gang up and uh, come back and join up with... Uh, Richard the no no Henry the seventh in waiting and they all kill him. Wow, yeah. not too bad. That was pretty close. Not too bad. I mean, I skipped over significant portions of the play as one does when you're doing when you're a thirty second synopsis. Whose idea was it to do this? I don't know, but it kind of <laughs> works. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you hit most of the high notes confusingly yeah. with <laughs> yeah, all the Edwards and, and yeah. kids and everything you mentioned. But but yeah, generally speaking, I think you get the gist that that Richard does a lot of bad stuff yep. in order to become king. And that's kind of the the thrust of our narrative today is that um this is it's not like other of shakespeare's plays where there are multiple issues you can discuss really the only issue being discussed here is that of power Mm -hmm. and and what it does to people um in order for them to achieve power um richard iii is probably one of the most machiavellian villains to yeah to really grace the the stage of I can't think of any other play. Definitely out of the entire Shakespearean canon. Yeah. Um, mean, maybe Iago. Iago's close. And, um, and we, we did just Aaron talk about Aaron the Moor yeah, in Titus Andronicus. And... But but here, I think what makes it interesting is that it's it's a psychological portrait as much as anything. Because Richard does talk a lot to the audience. Yes. Um, it The play opens with uh, yeah. one of the most rousing monologues. Um and and it's it's just literally Richard the Third laying out his entire plan. He yeah. wants to be king, and he's going to get it. He's going to get it. Yeah, and it's it's a lot of Kirk. Yeah, and and so we get to see the inner workings of of um, his mind as he goes through this process of murdering everybody in line to the throne, and even people who aren't in line to the throne, just people who who 
you know, stand in his way or, or defy him in, in even the slightest ways all fall to, uh, fall victim to his power hungry, uh, ascension, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And Lindsay, we've uh, we both read this play back in university. Uh, it's been a couple of years since then now. Yeah, uh, and, <laughs> just a few. And we haven't we haven't seen it since then really mm-hmm. either. We saw it uh, performed locally in around two thousand four, two thousand five. Yeah, can't remember exactly. Um, which is about the same time we just read the play. Uh, and so we hadn't dealt with it since. But we had so we had these kind of. Uh, a fairly foggy, distant memory of the play. I would almost call it a nostalgic, yeah. a nostalgic memory of the play. Because I remember, so. I remember this play being very, um, very interesting and romantic, almost in a weird sort of way. Where yeah. I just, I maybe it, it was how I was feeling when I first read it. I don't yeah. remember, but, um, but I, I, I was curious, Aiden, to ask you too. I think how this time kind of stacks up to that time because my first interaction with this play was really my my oft mentioned grade 10 11 english teacher had a postcard size picture of richard the third on her wall mm. the portrait the yeah. famous portrait yeah and uh, i remember her telling us about him and this was back before we knew anything about the real richard the third and so it was still this evil tyrant who murdered his nephews and that was all i knew about him it's yeah. just what she told us so reading the play was kind of like you don't even think of him as being a king of England because he's such a villain. Yeah. And the play, the play really paints him as as this um, engaging. Uh, he wins people over. Yeah. He's, he's like he's misshapen, but somehow um, in in at least the Laurence Olivier production that we that we watched recently, um, he seduces Anne Neville, played by the the beautiful young Claire Bloom. Yeah. Um, and she like falls completely in love with him in in the matter of a couple of scenes. He's yeah. he's such an engaging, sexually virulent character yeah, almost somehow. in a weird way. Yeah. So, but but reading the play kind of left me cold a little bit. I don't know. How do you feel? No, I I I'd agree, and and I have a similar mem- remembrance of reading the play uh, from our university years, and possibly that was just because. You know, this was a class devoted to Shakespeare. We were reading like a play every two weeks or so, and right. it was it was kind of like one after the other. And Richard the Third seemed to stand out for some yeah. reason, possibly because we didn't read a lot of histories in that class either. No. Um, and you read the big ones. Henry the Fifth, I think, was yeah. We did Henry the Fourth Part One, I think, and Henry the Fifth, and this, and then I think maybe Julius Caesar, which is kind of a tragedy. Maybe well, and even Richard and... the Third doesn't seem like a history. It no. feels like a tragedy. It's exactly. called the tragedy of Richard yeah. the Third in yeah. the first printing, right? Yeah. So. Which which is which is another we'll come back yeah. to the is he a tragic hero question yes. perhaps oh like. yes of course <laughs> but uh yeah reading it so reading it in that kind of context was was a little different than how we've approached here where we're mm-hmm. taking a much slower approach to the plays some of them we've read previously right. uh we're watching a, a film adaptation of each one um and so going into this reading was a little less exciting than mm-hmm. than i'd remembered it being um the the play is definitely centered around his machinations but it doesn't yet have the intricacies of some of the other like even henry the fourth part two actually had a slightly more nuanced political viewpoint yeah. because there were you know there was still this yorkist lancastrian divide right um and it was all through like proxies like jack cade and and all yes. these other things there were, there were these other elements to it that added a level of, of sophistication yeah, sophistication yeah to to the conflict whereas here 
it's really just Richard talking to the audience being like, I'm so evil. I'm going to do this next. And then he just pulls it off. Well, and, and I think that's what makes it interesting and boring, I guess. I'm putting that in quotation yeah. marks. Yeah. Is that it's it's personalities played against one another as opposed to um, whole ideologies or uh, political sides of the political spectrum, really. Mm. It's not York versus Lancaster. It's it's. Um, Richard versus the Richard, world. Well, yeah, but even <laughs> even the way that, you know, you have um, uh, Elizabeth Woodville's relatives versus yeah. the Edward's brothers and versus yeah. the, the, the people that Edward IV has surrounded himself with. And and it's like, it's those personalities that, that Richard is able to manipulate and, and play against one another, which mm-hmm. makes it slightly more of a... I don't know how to describe it. It's like, um, well, it's like, like a drawing room comedy as opposed to a yeah. big, huge, like everything is very intricate and very intimate and very yeah. like, this is all taking place within the walls of a castle in a way it's, it's, it is sophisticated and it does show Shakespeare's strengths in this regard. Yeah. We've said this before that that's where Shakespeare really shines, but, um, but it does kind of take away from it when you have, Everything happens so easily for Richard. Yeah, it's and it's less yeah. about the conflict that that ensues from his yes. motivation. It's just watching him gleefully achieve every goal, yeah. one by one, and and you kind of so it's almost more of like. <laughs> Lindsay, you can kick me under the table if you need a heroic journey for this character as opposed to an actual political uh, thing. It's very much a morality play because the fact that he loses his pants and shirt and, you know, life life (laughs) knife wounds, you know, at the end is is kind of the whole point is that it is not a political drama. It is a character drama of one man's utter evil and his eventual comeuppance. And that and that's different than Henry the the Six Part Two, which had that political drama and, and relied on characters to do it, um, but was maybe a little heavy on the politics as opposed to the characters. This right. one's far more on the characters, less worried about the politics. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways it's stronger, and in some ways it it doesn't have quite as much. Nuance. And yet it still comes off as a very political play. And yeah. we're going to talk about this as yeah. Shakespeare's a kind of a master politician, but but I think. This is a good time as any to talk about evil and mm-hmm. and sh- and I was gonna say Shakespeare's evil, um, <laughs> Richard Richard evil? <laughs> Richard the Third's evil and how how easy it is for him to do this stuff because it really is he doesn't have to struggle that hard there are, mm-hmm. and he doesn't even really do anything yeah he has other, other people do this for him <laughs> yeah um, which mm. is which is kind of interesting that that you know Buckingham is his right hand man just goes out of his way yeah, to, to do, do everything, everything until him. he doesn't and then he dies yeah um, and and yeah he is able to like whisper in someone's ear and set a whole plot in motion that yeah. benefits him and yeah. and it's like he is this master manipulator and he's always manipulating people for evil yeah. it even surprises him like when he when he woos Anne yeah. he's like when has when has this ever worked like yeah. has this ever worked oh <laughs> exactly. my god I can't believe I was able to do it like even he is taken aback by how easy it is for him to win people over yeah. and I think that is Part of maybe what you're getting at that it's it's less interesting that way. Yeah. But 
but it also just shows how how evil he is and how this is such a part of his character and, and it comes back to what we talked about in our last episode with his deformities and how yeah. he even says if I'm so deformed I'm going to play to that expectation yeah. and he does he just he goes in with this 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 role he is mm-hmm. completely takes over this role yeah. um, which is yeah I guess it, it fits with with what he does in the play it's yeah. it's actually he's he's a an interesting character in that sense yeah just wholly evil yeah we few we happy few we band of brothers one thing i think that i wanted to get your opinion on mm-hmm. because technically richard iii is part of the wars of the roses yes it kind of finishes off this minor tetralogy with the henry the sixth yeah. plays that we've just finished reading um so richard the third appears as a character in those plays as well mm-hmm. um the continuity is not necessarily there yeah. or is it <laughs> and i i wanted to ask where this evil kind of comes from because Richard isn't painted as a usurper or power hungry at all in those early days when he's defending his father, Richard, Duke of York. Yeah. Um, and even early Edward. and Yes, yeah. or Edward IV. He, yeah. he kind of helps out um, in the face of challengers such as Henry VI. Yeah. And, and when their own and brother... When comes back, he's Clarence, still, he sticks with Yeah, Edward. exactly. Yeah. Like like everybody who, who has challenged the right of who he perceives to be the proper king, the Yorkist yeah. claim to the throne, he is very firm in defending that claim yeah. and defending whoever is sitting on that throne. Um, so to see him all of a sudden when he gets his own play, to mm-hmm. see him kind of strut out from the very beginning and say he's going to take it for what it is, I mean, I don't know. I, I Is that, in your opinion, Aiden, mm-hmm. is that... Um, Shakespeare playing to the myth of Richard III? Is it uh, a kind of a, a reversal of expectations, an ironic mm. casting of this character from how we expect him to be in the Henry VI plays? Is it a comment on how power corrupts? Because that is something that you could talk about in this play. like mm. the, And it's something historians have talked about, how Richard maybe got caught up, the actual historical yeah. Richard got caught up in events trying to protect the throne from the Woodvilles and yeah. ends up committing heinous acts of <laughs> yeah, murder yeah, and, and yeah. dastardly crime. Good in intentions, to, and then he just goes right? off the rails. Yeah. So, so how do you view his characterization, Richard's characterization, as we enter the play? Yeah. Uh, it is. It is a. It is definitely a shift. But there was. There was hints, and we've talked about. We talked about this in our Henry the Sixth Part Three episode. Is that uh, Richard really starts coming into his own near the end of the yeah. play uh, when he murders Henry the Sixth? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, he murders Henry the Sixth, and he has that great thing like, nah, I don't want to listen to you anymore. And he just stabs like the God-fearing man. Richard, Duke of York. No, Richard the Third. The Third kills Henry the Sixth. Remember? No. Yeah. Remember they're alone in this nice oh, little scene. Oh, right, right, right. And, yes, and yes, even, yes. And even before that, I think he's like watching Henry pray or something. And he says like, uh, now I'm going to do my dastardly thing because I want to be king one day. And I think that's even a motivation he might have mentioned mm. when he's defending Edward. He's mm-hmm. like, well, I can't really stab Edward in the back for now. So I'm going to protect him because I can only become king if his part of like if our part of the family you know, secures the, the throne. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, there are there were hints of it. And we, we did mention that last time. But this character is evolved it is 
I think literally like, you kind of hit the nail on the head because it is his play. Yeah. I think Shakespeare, when he found out like, uh, okay, I'm going to wrap up the Wars of the Roses here. Uh, oh yeah. Who was last King? Richard III. Okay. This because you could have yeah. done, uh, you know, the, the tragedy of Edward the fourth and sure. like, and had Richard be a minor character and then, you know, have the whole thing or be about Henry the seventh, you know, right. like, that would make the most, absolutely, you know, sense in a propagandist way, yeah. but you don't because this character, it has the potential for so much evil and Shakespeare just exploited it right away. He's, and I think he, again, I mentioned this in the last one, he found that nugget in mm-hmm. Henry the sixth part three and he just went full into it here. Well, and it, it seems like, you know, Shakespeare probably learned his lesson, you know, the the interesting plays, the plays that got the most money and that people were really interested in, that, that got buzzed and talked about, mm-hmm. were the ones where you had memorable evil characters, yeah. right? Yeah. And you have a, a ready-made vehicle yeah. for your star to to strut out on stage and yeah. completely take over this role yeah. um was it burbage yeah it would have been burbage like I'm that sure. <laughs> that's that's got to be you know a, a motivating factor as yeah. well right yeah. um but yeah i i can't help but think that that um shakespeare might have um and and the other people who contributed to the myth of richard the third um they must have known about they must have known about the um, the corrupting influence of of getting nearer to the throne. The nearer you yeah. are to power, the more that's going to yes. So that that always kind of sticks in my or it did anyway this time that yeah. you know viewing him as somebody who we see as a young boy who loses his father and then you know kind of in, in the the tetra or the yeah, yeah, yeah. the trilogy the yeah. Henry trilogy and then coming into his own with his named play that mm-hmm. you know shows his downfall yeah um yeah it's kind of a it's a shift it is a but, shift. It, but it's shift but i think it's well earned well i think it's well earned probably because we know so much about the the history of it so so it like yeah like it's it's been mythologized to such a degree everybody knows Richard yeah yeah is evil king. well exactly and, and and my point of it being well earned is just that it it uh it works well for the play that that shakespeare wanted to tell oh for you know, sure like okay that that yeah. that that shift in his character works because you know, uh, the winter of our discontent is made glorious summer by the sun of York. Yeah. Like that whole, that, you know, if he just writ- had written that uh, initial uh, speech at the start, yeah. you have the whole play. Like, because yeah. that is it. I mean, yeah. he lays it all out in that, that yeah. first speech and uh, the rest of it's just falling through. Yeah. So um, I feel like as soon as he'd written that, if he wrote it in, in order, uh, you know, he's like, okay, shit, I've got something here. I'm just going to yeah. keep, keep running. I'm just yeah. going to make this guy the, the whole play. Yeah. Um, and that, that, that leads me to two thoughts that are kind of disconnected. So bear with me, Lindsay. One was the uh, Olivier production itself matched his, you know, repertoire, obviously, yeah. as... Olivier's know, repertoire? Yes, yes. yes. Uh, and the production of this one I know we were going to talk about it separately let's just talk about it now sure uh, the uh, the production feels very 50s it's it's on yeah. a you know a closed you know sound stage in, in southern California in glorious Vista Vision yes uh, <laughs> and uh, it well know, on, on a sound stage until the the battle at Bosworth Field which is very clearly in some field outside of San Bernardino or yeah, something like yeah, that yeah. it was just like oh we've got a lot here and oh those are the the mesas in the background oh yeah they had those in England don't worry about that <laughs> All the dead grass, yeah. No, no, that's totally English. Like, yeah, it, it, it is very telling that way. Um, but the production is very 50s feeling. It's got like this, these like huge orchestral moments 
of scores and Lindsay and I the whole time we were watching we were like this feels like an episode of Star Trek the original series it did yeah like in every way, like the acting style, the the lighting, the you know, it, it was of it, a time. It was it, it was. was it was the way that films were made. So yeah. that and that it was a vehicle for for Olivier. Yeah, that's, that's really that's all, it, all is. it was. Yeah, um, and it does a good job of that. Absolutely. Yeah. It it did feel a little boring, and this yeah. is coming from a couple of people who have slogged through some of the BBC productions yeah. of these plays. Yeah, which are excruciatingly true to the <laughs> the letter of yes. the Shakespearean canon. Uh, um, it did feel a little bit boring. I was not blown away. I was expecting to be a little bit more pulled into it, especially yeah. because it's Richard III and it's Olivier. Yeah. I wanted it to be more and, 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 and it just didn't Yeah, feel and the like production kind of hindered it that way yeah. in, in my estimation because like even the start, it doesn't start with the famous monologue no. it's like this whole thing and there's lines and there's the king Which getting crowned was, and stuff. it's actually written in the thing uh didn't i think the beginning of that play there were there were lines that were written by david garrick in the 18th century and they were part of an adaptation that he did prior to a production of richard the third that ah, he okay. starred in okay um so in yeah, his kind of rise in the... through the drury lane theater and everything okay. as, as an actor so so the, he's given a, a credit it, david garrick has an imdb page ah, okay. with a film credit a couple of film credits actually yeah. which is really interesting but um the the famed 18th century shakespearean actor yeah. david garrick um so yeah i think that's where those those lines must have come from because yeah richard the third starts with this this yeah. vaulting soliloquy. Yeah, and then um, and this one didn't. And no, it, and I found it. They it just it it drew me out because I was waiting to see like you want Olivier to walk on stage. Yeah, and well, and everybody has it. seen that, right? Everybody has seen that opening line with yeah. with the fake nose and yeah, the hair, yeah. the page boy haircut, yeah. and Olivier limping across this yeah. parquet floor. No, it's a checkered floor, but <laughs> or whatever the floor is, it doesn't yeah. matter. In yeah. my head, it's checkered. It's it's. <laughs> You know, it's so iconic. Yeah. And then to have it be this, you know, aged yeah. Edward the Fourth. Yeah. Who, <laughs> who was in his yeah. mid twenties when he ascended the throne and is yeah. played by a man in his sixties easily. Just, well, we've talked about this yes, we before, have. but we yes. Have. That is a problem. Um and so, so yeah, the, the the whole production is is kind of uh a little hamstrung, I mm-hmm. felt, but Olivier did do a great job oh, and, and like he his scenes do carry it and again because it is so focused on the character it does work that way mm-hmm. but um i'd have to say i, I preferred the ian mckellen and i was going to bring that up too because uh, in my mind you don't need to have a production that goes flashy and big budget and it doesn't need to be titus andronicus it doesn't need to be yeah. ian mckellen as richard the third in 1930s germany or whatever i mean it can it can be a, a soft understated production it doesn't mm-hmm. have to be huge but but there is something more engaging about the McKellen version and it's been years since I've seen it I don't remember all of it but the parts that I do remember have stuck out in my mind for a reason and I think Mm -hmm. that's because it is um similarly iconic but in in a different way yeah um and yeah so I mean I'm looking forward to our our look at the um the hollow crown the hollow crown yeah and to see how they kind of put it together what they choose to include and what they don't include because they cram yeah, a lot Four into, plays yeah, into yeah, like six hours, hours or something yeah. like that. Yeah, so, so no, but. it's true, um, and that does actually tie back into my my second tangential point, which was that uh, the popularity of this play 
Uh, yeah. And it was popular even in Shakespeare's time. Uh, it it was one of the few that received uh, a number of uh, quarto publishings mm. uh, before the folio. I think mm-hmm. there were six. There was a nice textual analysis in the, the version of the, the Folger's Shakespeare Library yeah. version that we uh, usually read. And... Uh, it talks about how the the first quarto is probably actually the worst version of the play. The folio is actually probably the the most thorough version. Okay, and it was probably Shakespeare's original copy or yeah. close to, um, and with some pieces of the previous quartos uh, kind of added in it over over time and stuff. Right. So um, it was popular enough that it received multiple publishings in Shakespeare's time. Yeah. Uh, which you know a lot of very plays that we adore and love and the public yeah. has clamored for were never published yes. or were until at least the folio, right? Yeah. So uh, this was a popular play in Shakespeare's time. Uh, continues to be a popular play. Um, it is one of the few histories that people know. Oh, yeah, Richard III, he was the bad guy, right? Yeah. I, you know, they know yeah. that. Um, and I, th- I think it's interesting that his name is so equated with, you know, this pure evil because of Shakespeare's uh, success in creating a play that's that's easy to understand and, and watch and enjoyable because you just love to watch this guy, whether it's Ian McKellen or uh, Lawrence, Olivier. L- Lawrence Olivier or, or any Benedict other. Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, or, you know, I'm sure uh, Mr. Shatner himself, uh, <laughs> Captain Kirk, also did yes. a production of Richard III at some point. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't really matter who's kind of in that role. It's, it's an engaging play to watch. And why do you think that is? <laughs> I mean, I think we talked a little bit about the the importance of Richard as a character, but are there any... I mean, this kind of leads into my point about... Um, well, let's talk about it then. Yeah, the, political yeah, the political aspect of, yes, of the play. Because I think that is part of why it's... Yeah, because yeah. it does feel like it's applicable to modern... it's very easy we were just out for dinner tonight talking about how easy it would be to adapt this to a modern day you know democratic national convention or the republican national convention and have this whole thing play out over a weekend in a modern political context with you know uh, delegates being wooed from one side to another and you've got air presumptives going missing or dying (laughs) or even just dropping out of the race and you know how easy this would be because it doesn't feel like anything Richard does is much different sadly from a lot of the shit that goes on in politics today. Nobody is dying necessarily, but but you've got underhanded things that are happening all over the place. Yeah. And um and it just seems like in crafting this perfectly Machiavellian character that that is fully rounded and has psychological like has a depth mm-hmm. um a depth to him it makes it real it it roots it in reality and also somehow becomes almost like a prototype for well it is the rest of for well well, and as you were saying that i'm like oh my god it's just house of cards and that's really i was just gonna bring that up too it's a hundred (laughs) percent frank underwood in in house of cards or uh urquhart what's what's the yeah in uh the the british version i can't remember remember his his name name either but Um, uh but yeah i mean that is the prototype right i mean and the british house of cards is that you know he basically opens up with like i don't care about the prime minister like i'm glad she's done i'm glad she's gone now i can wake my yeah and he talks to the camera exactly that way it's francis yeah it's francis Francis urquhart yeah yeah and and frank Frank underwood yeah okay sorry but yeah yeah, no absolutely the talking to the breaking the fourth wall and everything which yeah they are modern day richard uh, Richard the Thirds, and that's that. I, I think that is part of the thing. Is just that someone can be so uh, evil 
to the audience. P- audiences just love watching uh, an anti-hero go through the motions and and achieve his evil yeah. machinational yeah. goals. And I think that that just continues to this day. And I, I mean, I'm going to bring up Machia- Machiavelli again because mm. um, this quote from the prince, which is the manifesto that several rulers have used to justify their power and, and well, their... And which Shakespeare had probably read oh, uh, you know, when he was writing these. So. Um, he should appear to be compassionate, he being the ruler, yeah. should appear to be compassionate, faithful to his word, guileless and devout. And indeed, he should be so. But his disposition should be such that if he needs to be the opposite, he knows how. And that is nothing short of, of a perfect description yeah. of how many Richard III, you could name off a dozen politicians today that you just kind of feel they they might appear to be one way, but you know they could yeah. turn on a dime yeah. if they needed to. And that really speaks to... I mean, we could have a whole episode talking about Machiavelli and, and, and whether or not this was meant <laughs> we, to satire or, yeah. or not. But, but if you read it as, as literal, um, that's literally what, what Richard III does as he mm-hmm. takes the work of... Is, is Machiavelli mentioned in the play? I think it is. I think he, not, yeah, I think it was, yeah. Um, like he says he, he, he could school Machiavelli or yes, something yes, in, in, right. his, in his art or yeah. something like that. So, yeah. I mean, this is definitely something that is, that is on his mind. He's, he is Machiavelli's prince, kind of brought to life yeah. and writ large. And, 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 that and the is, audience gets to see under that lake to, yes. to the actual motivations. Because that's, yes. that's the thing about politicians that you don't know what their actual motivations are. Right. But when you get to see it and you realize, yeah they're bad <laughs> you know that that is an engaging experience for some reason well especially when you when you kind of suspect it all along when yeah. you're like there are backroom dealings there's some ulterior motive for why politician x is doing this to politician y yeah. but um but we never really know because nobody ever says out loud what they're thinking in their yeah, heads yeah. um Unless you're Maxime Bernier, which <laughs> is a inside joke for the five Canadian uh, listeners that, yeah. that pay attention. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I think that that also kind of lends kind of uh, a, a realism here. And, and, and it's interesting. It makes it more interesting because you get to see that happening. But you also get to see it's it is cool to see how at the end of the play, Richard um, kind of has to face up to everything that he's done. And the night before this this big battle he's visited by the spirits of all the people that he has wronged and killed or had killed or yeah. um and it's staged very interestingly so we talked a little bit about henry the seventh and how he doesn't really have much of a role and it's true he's he's kind of sidelined in the play that yeah. that restores him him yeah. to order and restores yeah. order around him He's the grandfather of the sitting monarch. Yeah. I mean, you would think he would have a more prominent position, but he really just is, he's mentioned as the Welshman for yeah. most of the play that when he is mentioned mm. at all. Um, but this scene is staged very interestingly because um, the ghosts, presumably the same actors dressed in yeah. ghostly attire, yeah. come onto the, the, the scene where the camp is before the, the night before, and they visit Richard, and then they visit Richmond, the the um, Henry VII, Henry Tudor, and tell Richard, "You will die," and and Henry VII that you will yeah. you will be victorious. Yeah. Um, so it's this this kind of divine almost intervention yeah. in the way things are going, which is 
partly why I don't really see Richard III as a tragic hero because I think God and the divine were never mm. on his side. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's not like they were on his side and they turned their back on him. It's like he never had their, their support and this was all going to go wrong from the beginning. So, but anyway, we get to see him and, and as he kind of wrestles with these demons that have, or the, the chickens have come home to roost and yeah, now yeah. he has to, to, has to deal with it. So there's that psychological twist Excuse me, that psychological twist at the end is what makes it engaging, makes him engaging as a villain because we kind of see him reckon a little bit with yeah. what he's done. Not fully, Can, not yeah. the way Macbeth does. Well, and that's, that was my counterpoint is, right? Yeah. Is Macbeth has the exact same experience, basically. Absolutely. And you you feel for Macbeth. You Whereas do. Richard, you're no. like, yes, you're going to get it. You yeah. know, it, it's, it, and there's this, the distinction in the characters is so limited in a way because they both murder to become kings yeah. and then both have them come back to us. Yes. But we feel pity for Macbeth to yeah. a certain extent and nobody really does for Richard III. No. And I think it is I think it is that self-assessment uh, of I am evil, I'm hunchbacked, yeah. nobody is ever like yeah. me, fuck everybody. Yeah, <laughs> I'm he's like, I, this is what I want to do and I'm going to set out to do it. Macbeth doesn't do that. Macbeth no. is cajoled and, and brought to it by his wife yeah. and, and by the divine who yeah. intercede on yeah. on his behalf and then turn their back on him eventually. So I mean there's there's a little bit of pity in that sense. Mm. I think that's why it happens, but with Richard from the beginning he's a, a bad guy and he does bad things in order to achieve bad ends. Yeah. Good ends for him but bad ends for yeah, everybody yeah, else. Yeah. So I think that's partly why I think the the um the difference exists between Macbeth and Richard but it is still interesting to see that these things still come back to haunt him and mm-hmm. and it's easy it's, it is really easy to see how Richard III being written 10 years almost before um yeah Macbeth, Macbeth was yeah. that it it almost feels like a dry run like mm-hmm. a dry like a rehearsal for the the much more deep and introspective and um, psychologically interesting Macbeth. Yeah. But still, I mean, Richard yeah, III is, yeah, is still great. Is still great. <laughs> Methinks thou art a general offense and every man should beat thee. I think thou was created for men to breathe themselves upon thee. I think the last point we kind of wanted to talk about is the treatment of the audience, the treatment of the public, yeah. which is something that the Wars of the Roses plays, this minor tetralogy has dealt with before in the... Um, in part two, Henry VI part two, when you have the rebellion that Jack Cade stirs up and the, how easily swayed the people are and, and everybody and comments. Yeah, but people even comment again how on how easy it is to fool them and bring mm. them from one side to the other. And that happens almost literally word for word in, yeah. in, in Richard III when Richard uh, tells Buckingham to lay yeah, the seeds yeah. of... For me, being named king, yeah. Yes, because they were bastards, and he wasn't actually my father's son, yeah. and and he and then and then the people come around to it, and it's it's remarked upon how easy this is to sway yeah. the crowd. But at the same time, it it, it it's it's in, it's more interesting here, I think, than in uh, the Jack Cape because uh, the the audience it, it kind of takes place in one quick scene. Uh, where Richard kind of assembles them as, you know, the Londoner crowd. Um, And, you know, gradually he, you know, Buckingham says, well, we have to make you king. He's like, no, I don't want it. I don't want it. Well, yes, because he stepped out onto the parapet holding his prayer beads and a prayer shawl and and the Bible. It's a a great piece of propaganda, yes. Oh, for sure. Um, But in this scene, it's, you can kind of see 
the there's a hesitancy to the the crowd's right. uh, willingness to go along with Richard. Right. In fact, the scene starts by Richard saying, "Oh, how did it go? Did you convince everyone?" And they're like, "No, they just sat there looking dumb because mm-hmm. they don't believe him right away. They yeah. don't believe Buckingham. They need to kind of see this thing in action, and they need to do this propagandist act in order to." Uh, bring the the common people on side. Right. Whereas in uh, the Henry the yeah. Sixth, it was very much just like, I'm Jack Caden, I'm going to make it so everybody doesn't have to work no more. Yay! Yay! And everybody clap, just clap, go. Clap. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah. this this is a little more nuanced. And the fact that he, that they assemble a crowd to do this performance yeah. is kind of a, a, a different subtext to it. Because again, and this is what we talked about with uh, part two, is that, you know, Shakespeare's kind of making a, a comment on his audience. His audience are peasants too. They're they're literally in this play the exact same. They are the yes. London rabble yeah. that uh, you know can cut off a king's head if they want to bad enough, right? Yeah. Uh, and so he's he's kind of commenting on the audience that's watching the play by depicting them in the play. And in this one, he gives them much more. Uh, a much more Credits? sympathetic view. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. A little more credit for being able to, t- to detect bullshit. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't really like Richard. When right. when uh, Buckingham comes out and is like, oh, yeah, we got to make yeah. Richard king, they're like, mm. Really? Really? Do we have Him? To do this? Him? Him? <laughs> uh, and for the two listeners who are arrested <laughs> development fans. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just us two. Yeah, it's us yeah, two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know that that's that's a different dynamic, I think, in this one. But it is it is still at the end of the day, they fall for it. Sure. You know, he he can he goes out and in his, in his little prayer beads and Very everything and penitent. Yeah, and, and he's like, oh, I'm just so upset about everything. The world's so bad, and oh, I need you to want pray me to be this. king? What? Yes. No, I can't. No, and you know, yeah, false it, modesty. Yeah, and it, and I think it more than anything. Again, it's supposed to in this play build up Richard and Buckingham. Yeah, as you know, these masterminds, these political masterminds are there to manipulate. Exactly. Yeah. And so I feel like it's, it's a slightly different approach, but that scene is interesting in the way it depicts the commoners. Well, yeah. And I think there's, there might be a couple of things happening there. I mean, there, there was some truth to the, the historical record of, of Edward's illegitimacy and the, that kind of filtering through, the common folk. Yeah. They would have heard the rumors. They would have heard the rumors. Um, They are also coming out of the, you know, they're, they're at this point, 30 years into a a dynastic battle where they've seen Kings come and go. Are they really going to throw all their support behind one guy where 30 years earlier, they put their support behind some other guy and it didn't pan out for them so well. I mean, maybe, maybe there's some character development for the crowds as well. Shakespeare has allowed them a little bit of that. (laughs) Um, But either way, I think your point is well made that, that um, there, there's an audience, there's two audiences, I think is how you put it earlier. Um, there's the audience in the play and then there's the audience of the play and they're not necessarily the same because I wondered what Shakespeare is saying about his own audience and I don't think he's he's putting them down or saying that they're stupid I think that it's it's a little bit more nuanced than that because as Aiden said it's it's um, it's a different situation here they're they're given a little bit more credit they're a little bit smarter they're or at least a little bit more savvy Mm -hmm. and um, eventually they do kind of come around but it's not the same as as Jack Cade's rebellion. So yeah. so maybe that just led me to think there's some no, the rabble had some character growth. Yeah, no, I, I'd say that's fair. And I think it, both scenes kind of are there for comedic relief. Like the yeah. idea that Richard is there, like praying with his Bible amongst oh, yeah. holy men, is like yes. itself laughable because yes. 
again, well, the dramatic that irony audience, of that, yeah. Exactly. The second audience is aware of that dramatic irony. So yes. they can kind of laugh at, at the dumb crowd who is being led to this conclusion that Richard should be king because we know that that's what Richard's wanted well, all along and, and, he's and, and plotted it. Yeah. You have to think that there must have been people in that crowd whose great grandfathers or great great grandfathers <laughs> were fell in that, for yeah, it. Exactly, who yeah, exactly. were in that like, crowd who believed like, it. Yeah, yeah, my granddad right? told but me about that. But we're smarter than that, yeah. you know? It's like millennials blaming boomers for everything. That's what's going on right here, right? We've got, you know, a generation gap. Yeah, yeah. And Shakespeare's kind of winking and nodding and, Mm -hmm. you know... Uh, this is this is a the 16th century version of an avocado jo- avocado toast <laughs> <Sure>. joke. Um, <laughs> I'd buy it. Sure, I'd buy it. Yeah, absolutely. What's mine is yours, and what is yours is mine. So a long-standing debate that Aiden and I have had that goes back to our Shakespeare days in university um, is whether or not Richard III is a tragic hero. Yeah. Um, you could almost look at this as like a, a bonus marriage counseling yeah. if you want, yeah. um, because it's something that we've never been able to settle. I don't know if there is actually an answer. If you are a Shakespeare scholar, far more scholarly than either of us, and you have the answer to this, please weigh in. But, um, but the definition of a tragic hero is somebody who is um, thwarted by their own uh, shortcoming. A, a There's yeah. a they have a, a tragic. Flaw. Flaw yeah. that leads to their downfall. Yeah. I do not think that Richard III has a tragic flaw. His own, and to be fair, to be fair, Lindsay, to be fair. To be fair. To be fair. Uh, there, his only real flaw is that he's pure evil. Like, I mean, that's kind of like the whole point is that... <laughs> right? It, yeah, his, his flaw is much simpler in the fact that it's not like... There's no good side to it. Like, Hamlet's, you know, kind of... Uh, he's indecisive, right. but you know that can have benefits. You know, it, sure. it, maybe uh, his uncle father would have been repentant. Maybe not killing yes. him there would have been a good thing. Absolutely. Um, but there's no such thing for for Richard. He right. is he's just pure evil. So yeah. I I grant I grant you that that this is not necessarily the best matching of that class. I just don't I just don't see the the argument for him being a tragic hero if you don't have a tragic flaw. That's the one defining thing that makes you a tragic hero. Yeah. So if you don't have that, how can you be a tragic hero? Yeah, but I mean he's he is the hero of his own play. So I think Well you yourself called <laughs> Frank Underwood an under or you yourself called Frank Underwood an anti hero. Yeah. So But is is Richard the Third an antihero? Is a tragic he, antihero? Is there it is. The Don Draper it. Yeah. <laughs> from Shakespeare. There you go. I kind of like that because that's probably a more accurate description. He's kind of a tragic antihero in the sense that uh, his evil ways are <laughs> are the cause of his own downfall. Again, yeah. his his pure evil, his desire for power. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's the tragic flaw in his in his quest for power, you know, like we want, we want to see him proceed as much as we enjoy watching bad people do good thing or bad people do good. Some bad people do bad things. Right. Uh, We want to see that sometimes. And when we get a a nice portal and a nice gateway into it. So uh, watching him fail is kind of, uh, as opposed to the Hamlets and their Beths, it's kind of a positive experience to watch him fail. So the anti is the anti hero in this kind of definition is is that he's not a hero so you want to watch him fall yeah so okay it's kind of a tragedy it's tragedy for him well, it's, it is, it's a bonus it definitely for the audience, is, a, I guess. is a tragedy uh, i think in in the, i i think it is interesting that shakespeare that it was listed as a tragedy it was called a tragedy it's it's counted as a history play yeah. but it is 
um, written up as a tragedy in in early um, references in the first uh, the first time it was published, it was called the Tragedy of Richard III. So um, that that I suppose is one note in your favor. But I don't I don't think you could call him the hero. He's the protagonist of the play mm-hmm. in as much as we watch him. He's the driving force behind all of the action. Yeah. But he's not a good guy. He's not a hero. I wouldn't say that. No. Um, he's an anti-hero. He's an anti-hero. <laughs> but not in the same way that Don Draper or... Um, yeah, or Walter White or something from or, Bad or something. Ah, know. what the hell. The Sopranos. Tony Soprano. Yeah, yeah. You know, like these guys are, are they're, they're characters nuanced. that... Yeah. Well, yeah, and, they're, and they're, they're bad guys who have... They're, they are well-rounded characters with flaws and they have redeeming qualities Mm -hmm. don draper is a very gifted speaker yeah he he can't communicate with people yeah exactly and that's his flaw yeah yeah yeah. right and 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 when he gets his redemption arc in the last season we enjoy this we want to see that but richard's whole motivation is that no one will ever love him then he woos and successfully Gets everyone on his side, yeah. manages to kill everybody, and becomes king, not through any real reason. He no. literally just wills himself out, yeah. and he gets people to support him. Yeah. People loved Richard. Yes. It's is ironic. Not, it's, it's ironic, it's just ironic. like Donald Draper over it there. It is. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is. So. But I, I'm saying that, I'm not saying that Donald Draper is a hero. I'm saying <laughs> Donald Draper is an anti-hero. Yeah. And he's not a tragic figure. I mean, he's a tragic figure, yeah. but it's not a tragic story That this in the same yeah, way that Hamlet is a tragic. That's true. I will or grant that you that. he's a tragic hero in that sense. He's, yeah. a, he's an anti-hero. Richard III is a tragic anti-hero. Yeah. I think we just coined a new term. I'm going to look it up. It's probably, probably yeah, already yeah. exists, yeah. but uh, I like that tragic anti-hero. If I longer stay, we shall begin our ancient bickering. So, marriage counseling for this mm-hmm. week. We've uh, mentioned it a couple times. Uh, Richard III, consummate politician. Yep. Right at home in this day and age. Yep. Lindsay and I, we're going to uh, identify a contemporary-ish politician. Within the summit. last 40 or 50 years. Yeah, yeah. Like, nobody, we're not going back to Taft or, like, you know, Ulysses S. Grant, you know, or anything like that. Right. None of them are that great, actually, no. for a comparison. But we're not going that far back. We're going to, and we're going to stick to, like, for the most part, you know, uh, Western, you know, d- democracy. The ones we're familiar ones. with. Yeah, exactly. The ones <laughs> we actually know. Uh, so, Lindsay, why don't you go first? Who is your uh, pick for the most... Uh, Richard the Ricardian. Ricardian. Ricardian of uh, our contemporary politicians. I have to go with uh, former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Um, For those of you who are not familiar, uh, Stephen Harper was our Prime Minister. I think he he first came to power in 2008, 2006, 2005? 2006. 2006. And he won a few governments, some majorities, Mm -hmm. some minorities. Uh, But towards the end, it was around the time of the the rise of the alt-right in the United States uh, and and in Europe, the... um, this kind of resurgence of populism nationalist populism. Yeah. Um, and he kind of lost the plot. I, I was never a fan of Stephen Harper's politics. I have never been a conservative. But um, towards the end, what he uh, what he did to hold on to power mm-hmm. um, or to attempt to hold on to power makes him far more like Richard III than he would probably want to admit. Yeah, that's fair. And and I think it starts in in 2015 with his campaign, his ultimately unsuccessful campaign to um, hold on to power uh, against Justin Trudeau, the Mm. first time Trudeau won. 
Um, the only time Trudeau's won as well, of the only this time, recording. The only time that Trudeau's won as of this recording, <laughs> we are go- heading into an election On a few Monday, days from yeah. now. Um, but anyway, he... Uh, he he there the one thing that sticks out in my mind is the barbaric cultural practices mm-hmm. hotline that he wanted to set up which would have been a a snitch line for Canadians to call on people who they think are are participating in barbaric cultural practices and of course what also that is dog whistle uh dog whistling to is things like sharia law the dreaded sharia law that everybody is talking about which is nothing it's not happening but if you if you set up a hotline that that allows people to just call and rat on their neighbors of course you're going to get calls from people ratting on their neighbors for things like eating halal meat. yeah exactly and so um that that really tipped off a lot well it 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 bothers me and that's something that i i could see richard iii doing you know appealing to kind of a broad swath of um racist people <laughs> in order the, to hold on to power. say the lowest common denominator. Well, yeah, yeah, and 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 that's something that he does. And then to find out that four years later, he's kind of been the puppet master behind the current Conservative Party leader, Andrew Scheer, and his goal... Continued, continued use of these, use kind of, of these yeah. Exactly. So so the dog whistling has, has continued, and that's something that... Um, that we see Richard III doing, you know, with with all the little things, the little seeds that he that he drops that become these plots that eventually, in his case, work out for in his favor. Um, these are things that I see Stephen Harper doing to this day in order to influence the the political landscape in Canada in a way that benefits him and benefits the party that he founded because the Conservative Party of Canada didn't exist before Stephen Harper. Yeah. We had, yeah, we had just just for yeah, yeah. <laughs> outsiders. Uh, we had two different part, two different conservative yeah. parties at and one al- point. The Canadian Alliance and the Progressive Conservative Party yeah. of Canada, and they merged together to become the a conservative. united Conservative Party, which is something that the left still hasn't figured out how to do: is unite their parties. That we yeah. have a two-party system, which is working out so well for the United States. Right? Yeah, that's what we want. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's my pick for the most Ricardian modern politician. Well, and, and you missed Stephen the Harper. most important part of the Stephen Harper comparison, oh, which please. is that he was a complete dictator. Oh yes. Uh, he was absolutely especially yes. I mean I think again it works more within like the party politic yeah. kind of thing because uh, he was famous for like muzzling scientists well muzzling scientists but muzzling even his own ministers like yeah. people in his cabinet uh, could not go on TV and give an interview nope. without, without his permission without his permission and him providing like Speaking exactly notes. what they would say yeah, exactly. yeah like this was not you know it's not like well it's not like trump it's kind of like the uh, the opposite of trump trump just goes off and says whatever he's going to say yeah and Stephen Harper else, very very yeah you know, very didn't controlled. allow the media into or only vetted yeah. uh specific politi- media, or, uh, yeah. sorry journalists were allowed to come into his yeah. press conferences and whatnot and he famously prorogued parliament so he he stopped parliament so that he would not face a no confidence vote yeah. he was he was about to be unseated in this was 2012 oh he did it a couple of times yeah but there there were a lot of things that he did that were unsavory and would have lost him the confidence of parliament but he just canceled parliament so he wouldn't have to face that and that's something that boris johnson has 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 very very recently and it was struck down by the u.s or sorry the uk supreme court um so it's something that our own prime minister did yeah more than once yeah and um, yeah, so I, I just think that, you know, the way that he attempted to hold on to power, the levels that he stooped to, 
Um, yeah, and the and the the dictatorial bent. The dictatorial bent. Yes, and, and I mean stabbing ministers and and other people in the back when they no longer served his purposes. Yeah. He was so quick to get rid of, you know, other parliamentarians who no longer agreed with him. And I stuff. love it when Aiden argues my point for me. Yeah. This is this is yeah. great. I think that I'm going to win saying, this I'm, argument. I'm helping you out. Well, you are no very way. much. There's no way. Because well, who who do you think you. is there anybody more Richard the Third evil? Baddie, horrible guy than oh, Stephen Harper. Lindsay, you've said it before. Well, you said it right there. Who's more Richard than Richard? I mean, come on, Lindsay. It's the obvious one. Richard Nixon. What what kind of <laughs> question is that? He is the ultimate. That's ultimate low hanging fruit. It is. Aiden. It is, and that's why I took it because <laughs> I only grab the easiest stuff and then eat it really quickly because I'm not very smart or good at these kind of things. So you <laughs> left Richard Nixon hanging out there. Yep. I'm gonna grab him because I mean, what what? How do the parallels not work? I mean, like he literally has the same name. There you go. I win. Right? Is that what you're gonna well, say? Well, that helps. But uh, you know, he's he's. So power obsessed. His whole, I mean, he's one. He's the only modern politician who's who ran for president multiple times. Right. Uh, who's was nominated by his party multiple times. Yeah. And it took until '68 to win. He ran against uh, Kennedy in '60 mm-hmm. and lost. Um, There's someone else for '64, I believe. Um, but then he came back eight years later, and he was a vice president before that. Like, yeah. His whole purpose was to amass power. He yeah. is literally there just because, like Richard the Third. I want to be king. That's right. my whole goal. Yeah. Uh, you know, Tricky Dick had the big nose and, you know, maybe that was his physical deformity, but whatever <laughs> it was, you know, he, he I thought was, it was his cold black heart. Well, that, that too. He definitely had one of those. But, uh, you know, whatever the motivations, his thirst for power was unrivaled. Yeah. Um, and then once he was in power, he would do nothing or he would do, he would stop at nothing, sorry, yeah. to, uh, to continue to hold that power. Right. So, uh, whereas, you know, uh, Richard's killing princes, uh, he's tapping Watergate, right? And yeah. this is, this is the kind of parallel. And then it all falls down around him. Unlike Harper, who basically, Shear is just Harper 2.0. I mean, Shear, yeah. it was just a Somehow a little less charismatic, which is impossible because Stephen Harper <laughs> if was a robot. you don't know Stephen Harper, we call oh, him God. Robo Harper for the yeah. longest time. Because there, there's an amazing story. Uh, we maybe we'll link to it, but there is one of our comedians, uh, Rick Mercer, mm-hmm. followed Stephen Harper around for the last election that he lost in 2015. Yeah. Or maybe it was the 2011 one. Um, but anyways, he followed him around and he described the way Stephen Harper... Uh, every single uh, public appearance of his was the exact same. He would hold his body in the exact same angles. He would sip his water at the exact same time. This is like the stump speech. This is the speech you give every time you go out somewhere during so an election. So Rick Mercer has seen this every day, multiple yeah, times a day for Yeah, he saw it for, for, like, out for a week or something like that. Yeah. He followed him around for a week and he was like, oh my God, he literally sips the exact same amount of water the exact same time yeah. every single time. Yeah. He was a robot. Yeah. <laughs> like Stephen yeah. Harper is a robot and Sheer is somehow less charismatic than that. Um, but you know that that again that continue that, making my point. No, no, no. This is this. against your point oh. because uh, Richard was charismatic in his own yeah. way. He had that allure and that aura, and so did Nixon. He he was you know he was all about the silent majority. And yeah, I'm speaking up for you, and I'm simple, plain spoken guy. Da, right. da, 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 da. He kind right. of helped build that folksy attitude. Yeah. Whereas before, Americans were fine with the presidents yes. being highfalutin, right. you know, kind of well educated people. Teddy I mean, Roosevelt. Okay, well, Teddy's Teddy's on his own level. Okay, like the dude got shot and finished his speech. All right, he's he's not like okay, most presidents. Okay, uh, but yeah, like so Nixon is is 
he's just this, and then it all falls down around him. Just like Richard, all his machinations, all of his planning, his crazy desire to hold on to power above all else, beyond doing any good, it's purely self-serving. Yeah. He, it falls down around him because he just... Go, tries to do too much. He's like, no, I'm going to backstab everybody and I'm going to make sure the Democrats can't even hold a fair convention at this point. Like, right. you know, the, he tried to destroy the system that was, uh, that kept him in power. I think the the thing, right. the, the one, right. no, no, no. The one <laughs> thing that I want to say against that is that in, in Nixon's case, it was his own hubris that brought him down. His, his own paranoia and he, he's far more like Macbeth in that sense, less sympathetic than Macbeth. Yeah. But Richard III doesn't build up a thing around him that then falls down. He's just the wrong person for that job, but which is, is where somebody else, a handsome young man comes in from across, you know, from France and, you know, takes over the king, the, the, the throne, like Trudeau, a fr- oh, you know, oh, just Christ, yeah. yeah. Your French stuff. I'm is, I'm just trying. I'm trying real hard here. I'm trying really hard here. Yeah, I can tell. I'm just saying it's it's it just seemed like like in. <laughs> I thought you were talking about Ford. I'm like what? What? <laughs> when Ford took over for Nixon, I'm like what? The- oh, see, you when you say when you say Ford, I pictured. Mustangs, yeah, Doug Ford. Oh, jeez. And I was like, why are we bringing this, the oh, Premier of Ontario? Stuff is I know. going way too far. But, but anyway, <laughs> I I. I I think there are points to be made in your favor. Yeah, and all of them. Because mm. yours doesn't... Because, yes, Richard Nixon... Richard the Third, I should say, he start he loses Buckingham by saying, "Oh yeah, you got to go kill the kids." Then he kills the kids, which you know doesn't inspire a lot of confidence. The fact that uh, he was uh, crowned himself king and didn't like you know wait for everybody else to come in line with him drove uh, the Queen's family to go help uh, Richmond. Like his his actions did directly lead to his own mm. downfall, just like Nixon. Mm. I think it's a pretty strong case. I'm sorry, but and I mean, you, you talk about Robo Harper, but he he does front a jazz band called the Van Cats, That's which true. is French for twenty four, which is a reference to the Prime Minister's the residence at twenty four Sussex. Yeah, Drive. I don't think he's allowed to play that band in that band anymore. They well, must have renamed themselves. I don't. I don't know. What did they rename them? The Barbaric um, Cultural Practices yeah, Hotline. Probably just the one zero eight eight. Oh my God. We are all over the map now. Are you drunk? I'm drunk. Let's uh, let's call the whole thing off. I guess that's where we should sign off because we finished. Yeah, we, I, think I think we've finished. I think this. we're done. Yeah. I, I think it's a draw this time. I don't think we can. We can uh, viewers say. or listeners, I should say, uh, you decide who who was the better one. Again, nobody's gonna know who Stephen Harper well, was. Well, we're gonna link to to at least the Rick Mercer story, yeah. so people can have a little bit of a. I hope it's still up. I think it was on McLean's. It might have. They might have taken it down at this point. It's behind we'll, a paywall, but we'll we'll, we'll do we'll our best. We'll see. We'll yeah. find it. Um, yeah, so let us know. Who do you think won this week's marriage counseling? Mm. Who has to pay the therapist? <laughs> that should be the way that we finish it. Yeah, 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 that's great. Okay. Why then the world's mine oyster, which I with sword will open. So that was it for this episode. Uh, next episode, we will be looking at the Hollow Crown. Yes, I'm uh, very much looking forward to this. Season two. Season two, yes. So they release them in uh, historical order. We are uh, doing, doing them, them in Shakespeare's chronological, chronological order. order. So, so yeah, so they're a little out of order. Um, but yeah, this is the one with Benedict Cumberbatch yes. as Richard III, mm-hmm. uh, which will be very interesting. And yeah, we'll we'll get back to you on What's that. What's the next play we are doing? 
Comedy of Errors, Lindsay. Oh, yes. okay. That'll yeah. be a good one. So that's that will be our next play. And uh, yeah, it'll be a nice change of pace. We've yes, done a lot from these of history. Dry and, and, and <sighs> Titus Andronicus. So to Very do it, a nice, bright Comedy of Errors, that'll be fun. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at TheBixPod, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TheBixPod, or by email at TheBixPod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.